So Thessalonians has provided a few difficult texts, and here we are again this morning. Um, title this morning is Let's Get to Work, all right? But before we dive into that, just a couple of things I wanted to bring past you. One is I want to thank you. Um, I'm going to limit my words here for the sake of the live stream, but we've been having kind of that secret mission offering. And uh, just want you to know that uh, uh, we received everything we were asking and some. And so that, yeah, yeah, that's appropriate. That item, that thing that I've mentioned off the live stream, um, that will be taking place. So we'll say more about that. When it can be a little bit more free with my tongue, so that's a little bit tricky, but thank you, church. Thank you for your care and your love. Um, and then secondly, just wanted to throw this out there, but this week, um, I'm going to be taking a week of vacation, and uh, if you need anything, don't call me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I... I've been telling some people I'm going to flush this down the toilet um, this week with great joy. No, um, please, we have, we have elders, pastor elders here. Um, they are available to you if you need anything. Uh, if you need pastoral care, please contact one of them. And if you would, just do me the favor and give me a week. Uh, I need it. I'm in need of this week. So I appreciate that so much. So we are here, and we are finishing up this second letter to the Thessalonians. I want to tell you about William Miller. William Miller was a Baptist preacher in the 1800s, and his claim to fame was that he predicted the return of Christ. One of those predictions was October 22nd, 1844. Miller had literally tens of thousands of followers. This, again, is the 1800s. Tens, and tens of thousands of followers, they were known as the Millerites. His followers prepared for October 22nd with great anticipation and great excitement and absolute certainty. Imagine the Millerites excitement on October 20th, 21st. Try to imagine as in their absolute certainty that in two days, one day, tomorrow, we are going to see the face of our Lord. Let me ask you, if I adamantly said to you and you adamantly believed it, that Christ would return one month from today. December 21st, 2021 is the day Christ will return. Let me ask you, how would that affect you? Practically speaking, if you bought into the idea of that's the date, what would you do? What would you do tomorrow? What would you do differently? than you're doing today. Would you go on vacation or would you go to work? Would you fast and pray 
Or would you party it up until the night before and come to repentance? Would you evangelize or would you lock yourself in? I would imagine most of the Millerites didn't go to work on the 22nd. I've read of other end time predictions that people had, well, they certainly didn't go to work. Different ones got on their rooftop. And so you'd have believers on their rooftops looking into the sky, wanting to be among the first to see the face of our Lord in his return. So if you are a Merwinite and you completely bought in, I'm asking, what would you do different tomorrow? Well, eventually the Millerites or others who climbed up on the rooftops eventually climbed down from the rooftop and they went back to work because they had mouths to feed and they needed to provide for their families. Eventually, they returned to work. When Christ didn't return on October 22nd, what I'm calling the Great Anticipation is actually historically known on the 23rd as the Great Disappointment. Sadly, the result of the Great Disappointment was a great exodus from the Christian faith revealing that the Millerites were more about being followers of William Miller than they were about being followers of Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul write what he writes here in in the second letter to the Thessalonians? There's likely two things going on. First of all, there was a false report about the return of Christ. And so it has been circulated that Christ had returned... Or perhaps it is now, the day day of the Lord is now, and it's happening. And the result of that was that the people stopped working. What should the Christian do that's expecting Christ's return? Paul's answer is going to be, go to work. Maybe that's a surprising answer. Continue to live. Be responsible. So that's one piece of that's going on there um, in, in the local culture. The, the other piece is that in Greek culture, the free man had a low view of work. And so work was for lowly people, especially the hard labor was for the lowly people. It was for the slave. And so some had the mindset that I'm above hard work. And so there were Gentiles living near this church who had converted to Christ. Now they're believers. They've gotten saved and they're coming to church, right? And they're bringing that mindset into the church with them. So Paul unpacks for us this view of work as we today await the return of Christ. And what he does is he shows us that a right view of work brings benefits, and it brings peace to the community of believers. All right, let's pause and pray, and we will dive into the text. God, we just ask you to pour out your spirit in our hearts, in our lives this morning. Lord, as your word is preached, 
Lord, I'm just so thankful you are active. Your word is living and active. So, Lord, where appropriately, convict our hearts. Lord, where we are looking at work in a way that isn't honoring you, help us. Help us to confess. Help us to repent where appropriate. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to change. Lord, there are no token messages when we're unpacking your word. And so, Lord, we ask you, by your mercy and grace, to speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first point is going to be a negative one. The second point is going to be a positive one. That's how Paul unpacks this. The first, the negative. To not work is to be out of step. Verse number six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not, according, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. In, Paul, in verse 6, Paul unpacks, or we're going to unpack, three words, walking, idleness, and the traditions. We need to unpack these to help us get some handles to understand where Paul is going with his argument. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first word there is walking. Walking says a lot about a person. How we walk. We're not even aware of this, but how we walk communicates some things to others that are around us. There is the brisk walk, the quick walk, right? That communicates something. It can communicate this guy is busy, this lady is exercising, Walking communicates. Walking without making eye contact, perhaps keeping your, your eyes down um, to the floor might indicate you're in a hurry, might indicate you're not interested in casual conversation. Walking um, with eyes up, chin up, perhaps can communicate, right? Conceited. Walking that is slow, it might communicate enjoyment. Maybe it's a love stroll. Maybe it's taking it all in, all that's surrounding you. Paul regularly talks about walking. He has already in the first letter to Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing that, you do so more and more. And so, they're walking, but here in 2 Thessalonians, there are individuals in the body who are walking in such a way that is not bringing honor and glory to Christ. They're busy, but they're busy with the wrong things. Paul will later call them busy bodies. We know what that means. So there's walking. Next is the word idle. He uses the word idol or idleness in verses 6, 7, and 11. In the original language, it's the word ataktos. And it carries a meaning that we need to unpack a bit because there's more weight to this word idol than what we might first think. We hear the word idol, we assume lazy. But this was a laziness that was beyond just kind of lazy. This was a disruptive. It's what the original word means, disruptive unruly, disorderly, to be idle. 
their being idle to the point of being disruptive to the community. That's what he's after here. It was often used um, in military terms in this day. And it further meant to be out of line. Militarily, you're out of line. You're, you're lazy, disruptive, unruly, out of line. And it carried up that military sense. And so in the original hearers, it would have had that kind of imagery, military imagery, that the soldier who is idle, that's all that Paul's going to say here, it packed a whole lot more punch than that is what I'm trying to say. That what Paul's talking about here is that there are individuals in the, the church, in the community of believers who are idle to the point of being out of line disorderly. Now, right? That, that says a bit more than just idle, what we might first think. The non-worker had become a burden, unruly, lazy, disorder to the community of believers. And it's thought that these individuals were probably looking to the church to provide for them those who were out of line and disorderly. Paul says, keep away from the brother who is idle and disruptive like that out of line soldier who's not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And that's the next word that we want to look at, the tradition. That word in the original language is paradosis. And it's the same word used in chapter two when he says, so then brothers stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now the Thessalonians is one of the first New Testament letters. Okay, so he's not referring to, you know, go back to the Galatians, go back to the Ephesians, go back to those other letters. There, there likely was no gospels either. And so he's talking about the apostolic oral tradition, the teachings of guys like Paul, and likely he's talking about their Old Testament as well. You see, it's important as followers of Christ that we have a Bible-informed rather than a culture-informed view of work. They had a culture view of work. And again, I think there's there's grace there. They're coming into the community as unbelievers become believers and come into, the, right? We're, we come in as babies. Um, but some things need to change. And I dare say, things need to change in our hearts this morning as well. You see, culture is always going to seek to define things for you. Always. Including your work. While I might sometimes agree with the bumper sticker that says, I'd rather be golfing, we live in a culture that goes beyond that, that says, I never want to work. I always want to be golfing. Work is bad, culture tells us. Work is bad, play is good. Work is to be endured. Play is what you really want to do, right? Live for the weekend, Work in culture's view is a necessary evil. And we need to recognize that those ideas are more culturally driven than they are biblically driven. There's a culture that thinks, I don't want to work ever. 
Give me a never-ending binge of movies or beaches because work, well, that's bad. This is where we tell that graduating senior, make sure that you land a career that you love. And while that's great, if you find yourself doing something you love, I think we do a disservice to the senior. I think we set young people up with the wrong expectation of work. What does the poor guy or the poor gal do when he or she lands, this is what I love, and suddenly finds out, this is not what I love? It's not what I thought it was going to be. It's not what I love. It's great when we love what we do, but hear me, there's nothing wrong with doing what we do with a higher motive to do it for the glory of God, even when you don't love it. There's also, this is also where we get the notion that upon retirement, I have earned this. I will no longer work a day in my life. Listen, retirement, well, it's not a biblical concept, okay? Now, hear me, hear me all the way through this. Retirement doesn't mean no more work. Retirement means there's a change in the nature of my work, okay? And so, but that's not the, that's not how culture is going to speak to that. Culture is going to speak to that as I will no longer do anything um, that, yeah, I don't want to do. I no longer work. It, retirement means that my kind of work has changed. It means I can now earn a retirement check, which you have earned that retirement check. And I can give my time. I can work freely. For some, that's going to be, I'm going to give my time to the church. I'm going to give my time to, to this good cause here, there, or wherever. And I want to say thank you, Richard and Rick, for how you have modeled for us how to do retirement for the glory of God. Secular thinking, however, will always push God out from the center, right? We want to live God-centered in all of life, including our employment. But secular culture will always push God out onto the perimeter of things. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised by that um, as it relates to work. But we've got to recognize that that mindset to push God out from the center seeps into our lives. It seeps its way into the church. And so we shouldn't be surprised by secular society's view of work because culture will seek to remove God in every aspect of life, including our view of work. So work is viewed, again, from culture. That's bad. Avoid it when you can. And if you can't avoid it, simply endure it. And times of non-work, which biblically is called rest, which is called Sabbath, right? Culture still pushes God out of the center. And it makes rest or Sabbath to become a selfish endeavor. Okay? Okay? 
A day of rest is much more about my comfort and my pleasures and really, in essence, the worship of me than it is about the worship of God. Because all the non-work that's done in life ought to be pursued for my pleasure. Work in our culture is viewed as something you ought to do as little as humanly possible, and I'm saying that seeps into the church. Now, here's a funny thing. Secular culture says we need to get God out of our work, push him out, and out of our rest, push him out. And yet, here's what's funny to me is we lustfully don't want to work, but we never stop working. We got to get ahead and we got to do more. All the while, we're going to complain about the work. In both non-work and overwork, we're buying into secular society that seeks to push God out of the equation. So culture says, work is bad, avoid it at all costs, live for the weekend, and then it turns the weekend into a selfish endeavor where God cannot be found. Now, it's interesting how the Bible speaks to both our work and our rest, and both can be done for our good and the glory of our God. That's another sermon for another time. But we also need to know that work is cursed. Did you know work is cursed? Work is something that was created, hear me, before the fall. All right? Which, which tells us some things, right? It tells us, okay, in God's good plan of things, he created work. Work is not bad, but it is cursed by the fall, okay? So we're going to need to unpack that. It is the result. Hard work, sweat, is the result of what took place in the garden. So let's go there. Adam was called to work the garden. We get that in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. What are you going to do with that? And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, right? Adam, you're going to need to work the garden for food. And Adam did so. And this is how God created things. And all of that is before the fall. Sin didn't create work. God did. Sin changed, however, the nature of work. And so if we flip over a couple pages, Genesis chapter 3, now Adam and Eve have sinned and God is bringing the curse to man. Verse 17, and, and, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All that tells us work 
is now sin cursed. So the next time you're working and you're sweating, let the sweat remind you. Literally, let the sweat remind you. We live in a sin-cursed world. Work after the fall comes now with pain and frustration, right? And backaches. You got a backache from working? Let it remind you. It's because of the fall. Because we are fallen people. But it also provides food. So when you work, think of it like this. It is as if you are pushing back on the fall. In other words, to put it in a picture, you're a gardener. And you decide, you know what, we're going on a long vacation. And upon returning from your long vacation, what? Weeds. Lots of them, right? Fall. (laughs) That just tells you, wow, my garden is a mess. Fall. When you work the garden and you're pulling those weeds, you're pushing back on that fall. You are, in a sense, I'm going to call it redeeming the garden from the fall. Years ago, I was working in the yard and there was an elderly We used to have an elderly Hindi lady uh, from India, and she would walk past our house regularly, every day. And one day when I was working in the yard, sweat was pouring. She stopped, to my surprise, because I tried to engage her at, at different times. She stopped, and she asked, well, I won't try to do this in, in India. I need my wife for these things. Um... But she just said, why do you work so hard in the yard? And I found that to be a lobbing softball. I said, so glad, so glad you asked. You know, that's not what I said. But I told her, because I work hard in the yard for the glory of God. Because all that we see, God has created. And we have a responsibility to make things beautiful. When we do, there's something about that that's a reflection of our God. And so I love working in the yard. And then there's July, summers in Florida. And I don't love working in the yard, right? Because there's a fall. What Paul is showing us here is that to not work is extremely serious. Now, we need to note that he's not talking about the person who's unable to work. He's talking about the person who's unwilling to work. And there's a big difference. He's talking about the out of line, lazy, unruly, disorder of the idle person. That is to be viewed seriously. We're to think it's a radical thing if I'm not working. That's the negative. Now for the positive. Paul's going to say, follow my example and work. We want you to look here at Trinity at your elder team. And we want you to think, huh, those guys are hard workers. 
Paul is saying that kind of sentiment. He actually says to them, I didn't eat anything without paying for it. Well, what Paul is after here is he's wanting to say, look, I'm not, I'm not an apostolic mooch. I'm not going to throw down the apostolic card and just be a burden to you. He's not dropping the apostolic card at the dinner table out at the restaurant on people so that they would be burdened for him. Verse 7, he says, we were not idle when we were with you. Verse 8, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We worked night and day that we wouldn't be a burden to you. Paul could have asked for a handout, but he didn't to avoid any accusation and avoid being that burden. He didn't want there to be a sort of taking advantage of people. No apostolic upmanship. He's not saying he didn't receive acts of kindness from people. We know that he did. But he worked so as to not be a burden on the community. Okay? So some people here from this passage would say, See, pastors shouldn't be paid. This is an awkward moment for me in this sermon. Because of course... That isn't what I think Paul is getting after here. He is after the person, and that person can be a pastor, just the same as anybody else, who places a burden on the people, a pastor who puts a burden on the people, who expects some sort of special treatment from the people. Feed me, feed me. I know some guys, pastors, who go to the restaurant and just expect to be fed, expect for the meal to be paid for. And I think that's weird. And I think that's weird from the second Thessalonians. Hear me. Not very long ago, where are we? We're in November. So in August, we celebrated our 25th anniversary as a church. You guys gave Kim and I a special gift for that 25th anniversary. We are extremely grateful for that gift. There will be a day we hope to send pictures from somewhere in Europe saying thank you for that gift. I just want you to hear from us. You should never feel obligated to participate in a gift like that. We thank you. It is kind of you. It is precious of you but it's not an obligation put on you. Because 25 years in church culture is viewed as, well, that's a long time. And it is, it's a long time, trust me. It's a long time in our culture. But that doesn't mean special treatment, right? And I think this is what Paul's getting at. I'm not an apostle. I'm not the apostle Paul. But I do want to say, I join with Paul and say, I don't want 25 years to be a burden on anybody. I think it would be inappropriate. Actually, about 10 years ago, Kim and I began to take steps to provide for our retirement because we realized after a conversation, some of you guys know Danny Jones, we were having a lunch with him one day, just a casual get together, and we're just shooting the breeze. And at some point in the conversation, he was just communicating, you know, it's just not helpful when pastors don't plan for their retirement. And we're going, hmm. And, and he just kind of started fleshing that out because 
pastors, especially when they're at the same church for a long period of time, and then they retire, and then they grow old, and then they're unable to work, um, a church can feel an obligation to take care of that pastor. I mean, poor Tim and Kim, they've got no food. What are we gonna do? And somehow the church needs to create, they feel this obligation to create monies to provide for into retirement. And we just walked away from that going, yeah, that's right. Like we never want to be a burden on the church. And so we began to make plans and think through and take different steps in investments to, if the Lord wills, provide for us in our retirement. I see two pitfalls among my pastor friends. One is to underwork and one is to overwork. And the one, sometimes I see pastors and I think, what in the world do you do? And the other, overwork, I think, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) My temptation is always to be on the overworking side of things. I would never want to be accused of being lazy, lest you think I'm trying to make myself sound good in front of you. Let me put it this way, in a confession sort of way. My overwork over the years has been and sometimes still is motivated not out of the glory of God, but out of people's opinions of me. It's a fear of man issue for me. I want to be thought well of in your eyes, as opposed to, I work before the Lord, not before man. So you can overwork to a fault out of, out of sinful motivations. So Paul isn't saying, don't pay your pastors. He's saying, pastors, don't mooch off the people. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Paul has made it clear, we won't go there for now, but you can write it down, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 14, He makes it clear that it's appropriate for a pastor to be remunerated. So back to Adam. He sinned, and when he did, work became sweaty. But more than that, the fall introduced this idle, unruly, disorderly behavior that was out of line with God's original intent for his creation. So point number three, work for food and work for unity, is verses 10 through 13. Let me read. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so this idleness had created this disunity in the community of believers. Some people think that when it comes to the Bible, that the Bible is a welfare state. Paul makes it clear that those who are not willing to work ought to find a strong motivation to work because they're hungry. The Bible is not socialism like some are trying to make it to be. It seems that in verse 11, this idleness created this busy body. And the gist here is that the busy body started meddling into other people's problems. A lack of work creates this wandering around and because you have the extra time, you begin to meddle and you begin to find problems which created a disunity in the body. And so in verse 12, Paul says, 
be busy at work so you're not a busy body. And then verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. You know what Paul's saying there? Stay the course, church. Don't grow weary in doing good in this context. Help people who genuinely need your help. Think about, think about what would be wearisome to these believers in this body. Because there are some who are unwilling to work, maybe we're getting weary and we don't want to help those who are unable to work. Don't grow weary in doing good, brothers. I think Paul is saying, don't go weary with the non-willing in such a way that hinders your care for the non-able. And by the way, he tells us in verse 14, the non-worker is not your enemy. He is your brother. This helps us to realize who Paul is writing to. He writes to the church about those in the church. It's the community living here. It's not that he's addressing the world. He's addressing worldliness that's come into the church. Last point, the gospel and work. Now, it's not as if Paul turns the page here and begins to unpack the gospel. But we need to see that all of Paul's letters are written in the context of the gospel. And I want to bring the gospel into this conversation because I think it'd be helpful for us in closing to consider the gospel and work, our employment. You see, when we work hard, we do so aware that our sweaty work is a reminder. This is not the way it was created to be. Sweat is pouring. God made work and he made it good. Sin, sweat is pouring. The sweat, again, reminds us that the curse, which reminds us, what? Of redemption. We have been saved I already mentioned that when we work, we're pushing back on the curse. We are redeeming work, if you will. But more than that, hardworking Christians are a display to this world. You do not work hard because you have a good boss. You work hard because you have a good God. Say, if I just had a better boss, that's small view of work. You've got a good God. Work hard. So if I could just work for a Christian as if that would solve things, right? Now, you've got a better boss. We do sweaty work, hear me, because he has done bloody work on our behalf. Christ's sacrifice, his work on the cross was also a work that was done because of the fall. The fall is why we do sweaty work, but it's the fall that's why Christ did bloody work. It's because of his work on the cross that we can now work for a greater glory, not for man, 
but heartily for the Lord. And so Colossians 3 says it like this, whatever you do, do heartily, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Christian, followers of Jesus Christ, hear me. Because I don't think our big issue as we come to Thessalonians, I don't think there's primarily an issue with whether or not you'll work. I think more the issue at Trinity is whether or not you'll work with an understanding, I work for the glory of God. Believers in Christ, we are to be hard workers because we ultimately work for the Lord. Your believer or your unbeliever employer ought to go, wow, the Christians in my company are hard workers because we serve a bigger boss because we have a greater motive. The glory of our God is why we work hard. Serving the Lord is why we do work. We ought to do work with excellence. Undeserving grace has come to our lives because of the work of Christ. And so we offer hard work even when our, un, our employer is undeserving. It's not about your employer and whether they deserve your best offer, your best effort. It's about your God. And you do what you do for the glory of God. And so we offer this hard work, this excellence of work when our employer is undeserving or our boss treats us unfairly because Christ worked hard for you and me, undeserving sinners. And so we do so to bring glory to God and the gospel message to the workplace. So Matthew 5 tells us, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Or we could, in this context, let your light shine at your job so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So at the end of a long day, remember your sweat and his blood is because of the fall, but his work on the cross has redeemed you and your work never will. Your sweaty work has been redeemed by Christ. You are a new creation and that makes all the difference as you go to work this week. When you are overworked, when you are overlooked, when those working around you speak offensively and what? I like to say that the world does what the world is. Darkness does what darkness is. We shouldn't be surprised by what the world does because of what the world is. It's okay because he has worked for us. We now get to work for him in the world. And he came to our darkened hearts. And now even when we work and we sweat, we bring him into the darkness of this world. That the name of our Lord and Savior 
might be glorified in all things, glorified even in our work. Let's stand together. I think it's appropriate. We don't have any songs that sing about work, but I think it's appropriate that we sing about his bloody work before we close. So let's sing together.